0: So, in Luke 14, imagine you heard Jesus that day in Palestine say these words. Luke fourteen twenty five. Now, great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The Word of God. Jesus is looking for disciples. Not mere converts who have trusted Christ as Savior, as important as that is. But those folks who have trusted Christ as Savior, and they they give their whole lives to him. They walk with him. They surrender their lives to him. He is looking not just for converts, but for disciples. Not simply casual Christians, but radical Christians who are all in for the Savior. Now, church, you know, our entire vision here is about making disciples right out of the Great Commission. Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. And then he defines it this way. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So how does he define a disciple? Baptize believers who obey everything fully surrender. Those are disciples, baptized believers. And our command from Jesus, our charge the, the, right before he died, go and make disciples. This involves two things. This involves lost people and believers. It involves discipling lost people into the kingdom, our top five that we're, I ask everybody at Wood's Edge, if you would ask God to give you five people in your world that you could pray daily for and that they would come to Christ and that you could have an opportunity to reach out to them. So we want to disciple people into the kingdom. We want to love them. We want to pray for them. We want to talk with them as God gives us opportunity. But we also want to disciple each other, believers, our children in our children's ministry, our students in our student ministry, each other in our adult groups. We're all a part of that. Ask God, if you don't have some clear folks that you're discipling, to give you some disciples. Or maybe you're going to ask him to, Lord, bring somebody to disciple me. But our small groups are all about discipleship groups. Okay, that's the call of God, making disciples. But we need to first be disciples, don't we? I mean, if we're going to make disciples, let's, let's be disciples ourselves. Baptized believers who are fully surrendered, who obey everything. Now, Jesus, in this passage, probably the strongest passage in the Gospel of Luke, that has been a challenging book, the strongest passage probably on the call to discipleship. He gave us three conditions to be disciples, sort of acid test whether or not you're a disciple. The first one is you've got to hate father and mother, parents, wife or spouse and children, brothers and sisters, and yes, even your own life, or you cannot be my disciple. Now, first of all, what does Jesus mean here? Does he really want us to hate these people that we would consider closest to us? Well, in light of the fact that the entire biblical teaching is really emphasizing the importance of loving one another in light of the fact that in Matthew 22, Jesus was once asked, what's the greatest commandment of all? And he immediately said, love the Lord your God. But then he said, he adds another one, he says, but there's a second like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, anybody around you with a need, love them. And in light of the fact that in John 13, 13, before he uh, is crucified the next morning, He looks at his disciples. He gathers his 12 disciples in a room. Actually, Judas is gone now. 11 disciples. Looks them in the eye and says, By this is how people are going to know you're my disciple. Here it is, right here. If you love one another. If there is a distinguishing mark for discipleship, it is not how much of the Bible you know. It's not how much churchy you practice. It's not how much you give. It is love, sacrificial, selfless, affectionate, heart-throbbing love. 1 Corinthians 13. In fact, he says there, if you don't have love, I don't care if you have the gift of prophecy, you've got the faith to move mountains, you deliver your body to be burned, you give up all you possess to feed the poor, you ain't got nothing if you don't have love. It doesn't matter at all. So in light of all of that teaching and more, uh, we can be confident that Jesus is not telling us to literally hate So, what in the world is he telling us in such strong language? He is telling you this morning that your love for me, he is speaking to you and saying, Your love for me must far exceed your love for the people around you. In fact, he's saying, Your love for me must far exceed the people around you who are closest to you, wife and kids. In fact, he's saying that your love for me must exceed by far your love for the people closest to you. In fact, it must exceed by far so much that any human love relationship would seem like hate by comparison. I mean, it's such strong language. God is calling us to love him, to love him. God wants us to love him back. It matters to him. He doesn't really want your religious duty and obligation. He wants your heart. He wants your affection. He wants your love. He wants you to love him back. Just love me. You know, the heart of the strong call to discipleship in the Gospels is not the call itself, but the love of God underneath the call. That is the whole reason and motivation why we would love the Lord back. Because He has first loved us. And this is love, not that we love God, but that He's loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins. It's because His love ran red on a cross, the love of the Son. And our sins were washed white, that we want to love Him back. It's because He has loved us with an overwhelming, tender, emotional, heart-wrenching stubborn, relentless love that we would love him back and that we would want to be his disciples who are all in for the gospel. It's love. It's love. And he's calling us, love me back, love me back. What does this mean? This means is that if there is ever a conflict between what your spouse wants you to do, what your parents want you to do, what your kids want you to do, what all of your family together want you to do, and the will of God, the call of God, the clear call of God in the Scriptures and elsewhere, if He is really speaking to you clearly, if there's any conflict, the case has already been decided. It's a no-brainer. You go God's way. If your parents uh, uh, are opposing you to loving the Lord, that's already decided. You you love Jesus first. Um, We had a young man from Lebanon here a couple of months ago for our men's advance. Some of you met him, dear young man, really liked him. Muslim background, uh, through the ministry of the Handlers from our church that have been over in the Middle East. They uh, come to know, He's come to know Christ, and his family really doesn't like it. I mean, really doesn't like it. Uh, he's had a couple of cousins tried to kill him. His life is in danger. Uh, we, we actually hope to bring him to the States for a while to uh, you know, to protect his life before, you know, we send him back to his country to help reach his country. But he knew that when it comes to family or Jesus, uh, you love Jesus first. It's really the great, the, the first of the Ten Commandments have no other gods before me. Nothing is as important as me in your life. Now, what this practically means, um, this is what I see as a pastor in the last 30, 35 years. A couple will love. Maybe they both know the Lord, but one is on fire for Jesus and one is not. And over the years, this is what I see so many times, is that the the, the believer on fire allows themselves to kind of drift away and accommodate to their spouse and maybe excuse it in the name of uh, family. But the Bible is clear. You love me first. Your spouse wants to hold you back from God. You shut your ears. You follow Jesus first. You do not let your spouse hold you back. That's true, by the way, of a Christian spouse and a non-Christian spouse. You love the Lord and pursue the Lord no matter what. For the last 50 years, most of my life, we have had a resurgence of attention to the family in the United States. It wasn't always that way. Uh, The previous day, uh, pastors like me, you know, commonly ignored the family, ignored their own family, and felt like, well, God will take care of your family. And it was a, a, a wrong thing to do. But we have had a resurgence on marriage in the family for 50 years. Men like uh, James Dobson, like uh, Gary Smalley, Michael Smalley in our church, his dad, Gary Smalley, and others led the charge, and it was a needed charge. And we need to be devoted to our marriages, to our kids. But we're pendulum people. And sometimes we swing too far and idolize the family. And that can happen in our circles that just sort of subtly, pretty soon, the family, my kids, uh, maybe my marriage, more often my kids, become the most important thing to me. Friends, it's a subtle thing because you're to love your kids with all you got. Love your spouse. There's no one in the globe more important to me than Gail. But you love Jesus first. He is your first affection. And if He is first in your life, you'll love more the people around you. He will fill you with his love. So I'm just reminding us of what we know, that Jesus has called us. If we're a disciple, love him first. Let me give you an example. This would be the sort of thing that would not be directly in the Scripture, but Thomas Aquinas was a great theologian in the Middle Ages. If you have a Catholic background, you probably know the name Aquinas. Between Augustine in the 400s, 4th century, and Calvin in the 16th century, the greatest theologian, by acclamation, was Aquinas. Well, Aquinas had an interesting story because he came from a very wealthy background, noble family in Naples, Italy, and he just had the life of luxury. He would, you know, be dressed to the hilt with his finely-plumed hat and riding his horse, you know, around the Bay of Naples, and that's the kind of life he lived. But he felt the strong call of God to become a Dominican monk. And that was not what his family had in store for him. And he was resolute. This is what God's called me to do. And his mother, uh, I mean, there was all kind of furor in the family. Uh, His mother goes not only to the Archbishop of Naples to protest, but to the Pope in Rome. You got to do something to stop this. Well, the Pope offers him this high exalted position, which he turns down, and he spends his life as a Dominican monk. And his parents probably had no idea that he would not only be the greatest theologian of his age, but of any age between the 4th century and the 16th century. And God used him powerfully. Later in his Summa Theologica, his uh, great magnum opus, he, would, he addressed this issue for a time about, what if your parents you know, are in conflict with the Lord? And he, and he basically quotes another scholar to say, you know, just fling that aside and with dry eyes... Fly to the cross. Dry eyes. I take that to mean with resolve in your heart, I will follow Jesus no matter what. Friends, Jesus Christ is, is first by far in our lives if we're a disciple of Jesus Christ. Love your family, of course. I adore Gil. Adore my kids, grandkids. But Jesus is first. And that's the way disciples treat it. Secondly, the second condition, briefly, verse 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Okay, bear my own cross. When we hear the word cross, we think of one of those or maybe we think of the silver cross around the neck, or maybe the ornament on the wall—something like that. When the first-century hearers heard this statement, they did not think about any of those three things. This is what they thought of: they thought of someone carrying the horizontal cro- crossbeam to to a uh, on their way to execution, to be nailed to that thing, and to the vertical. beam in a cruel execution. They thought, oh, he is on his way to be executed. And it was a tough thing. The word cross would mean for those hearers something what the word electric chair means to you. You hear electric chair, you don't think of a piece of jewelry or an ornament. You think of execution. Somebody is about to get executed. Okay, what is Jesus saying? You've got to pick up your electric chair, bear your cross, and follow me. As you give up your life. You die to self. You live to Jesus alone. You were you, you you are crucified on the cross with him. Your whole life has been given up for the sake of following Jesus Christ. That's a disciple. This is not, by the way, comfortable, casual, casual. Uh, easygoing, modern Christianity. This isn't running around to churches. How can you feed me? How can you serve me? What can you do for me? This is the way of the cross. Jesus, how can I serve you? How can I advance the kingdom? Lord, what is your call on my life? That is the way of Jesus. And he's saying, you've got to bury your cross. You've got to be willing to give up your life. It's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in uh, Nazi Europe as he was opposing well, it was before he really opposed Hitler. Writing in his theology, he said, "When Christ calls a man, He bids him come and die. He bids him come and die. He doesn't call him to a bed of roses. He calls him to all-out obedience, surrender, loyalty, fervent affection, and fierce loyalty." Later, it would cost Bonhoeffer his life as he was executed by Hitler before he died. Uh, I love the story of Nelson Mandela's commitment. You have heard me tell it because I think it's so powerful. Remember Mandela, the leader against racial injustice in South Africa, arrested and uh, everybody knew he was going to be convicted and either uh, sent to a lifetime of prison or to be executed and tortured. And he had an opportunity to speak to the jury before uh, he is sentenced. And this is what he said. He said, ending apartheid, is a cause for which I will gladly invest every day of the rest of my life and the cause for which I'm fully prepared to die. Now, the cause of ending apartheid is a very important one. Racial justice is very important to the heart of God, and every other kind of justice is. But our cause, the cause of advancing the, the cause of Jesus Christ, is by far the most important cause on the planet because we rescue people not for 30, 40, 50 years, but for all eternity. And because Jesus Christ is first, because this is what people need the most. And just think about what Mandela said. He said, this is a cause for which I will gladly invest. Not, oh, reluctantly. Not, oh, poor me. Oh, i got to do this. No, no. I gladly invest my life for this. And I will gladly invest every day of the rest of my life. Or it's a cause for which I'm fully prepared to die. Now, if Nelson Mandela is willing to give his life... And to give his, or to die for the cause of racial justice, will we not be willing to die for the cause of Jesus Christ? Live or die. Let me say this. It's much easier to be a martyr martyr, than to live the life of a saint. Isn't it? I mean, we have martyrs today around the world. Somebody told me between the services about some little kids, son of a bishop and... Challenged by ISIS, look, is Jesus the most important thing to you? Will you renounce Jesus? No, we want, children were killed. I mean, they they do that. It is easier, though, I imagine, to die the death of a martyr than to live the life of a saint like you and I and every day surrender our lives afresh to Jesus Christ and say no to the cultural norms of living for self and things and stuff and saying, I'm going to live for the next world. I'm going to live for Jesus Christ. He says, this is a true disciple. You give up your life for me. What's that mean? Well, it means we obey what the Lord says. No questions asked. It means singles in the church don't sleep together before marriage. It means that uh, couples in marriage are faithful to each other as long as they both shall live. And I realize there are some extenuating things that the Bible gives you opportunity. But, but basically, you know, we love that spouse no matter what. It means that when gossip is so easy and common that we say no. Anybody else here besides me struggle with gossip? If not, you struggle with lying. Because we all struggle with gossip. is my universal experience of Christians. I mean, one in a hundred doesn't. That means we don't say bad things about people. We go to them if you've got something to say. This morning I was reading Proverbs 12 and about three or four or five verses in a row calling us to honesty, to honesty. God hates lying. God hates deceitfulness. That means when we kind of think, excuse something, with, well, it's just a small lie, uh-uh. God hates it. A disciple says no. Forgiving somebody who's hurt you? Oh, absolutely. If God has forgiven me of a billion, billion dollars worth of sin, yes, I can forgive that thousand dollar sin over there against me. Or that million dollar sin. Giving 10% off the top? No question. My privilege. Gladly do that. Friends, this is a disciple. We're not talking a good game. We're obeying the Lord because we love Him, because He's first loved us, because of a bloody cross where love ran red and sins washed white. The attitude is uh, of a contract, except in this contract, you don't read through all the conditions you've got to follow and sign your name at the end. The contract is a blank sheet of paper, and you write your name, and you're basically saying to the Lord, whatever, whoever, whenever, however, whatever you want, I'm in. You sign your name in advance, I'm all in. That's a disciple. Not perfect, but you're surrendered. That is your firm resolve, your firm resolve. I think about Polycarp in the early church. In our first service, there was a man in our service from uh, Turkey, modern-day Turkey, and uh, Izmir is one of the great cities in Turkey today. And It was the ancient city of Smyrna in the book of Revelation, one of the seven churches in Revelation, Smyrna. And the apostle John uh, was exiled right off the coast of Izmir on Patmos. But before he was exiled, he discipled a man by the name of Polycarp who became the bishop of the church in Smyrna. Can you imagine? Your discipler was John the apostle. That had been something. Well, Polycarp was all in. And uh, from time to time in the Roman world, the Roman Empire, there was a, a heightened persecution of Christians where many would lose their lives. And when Polycarp was an older man, there was such a period uh, where leading Christians were uh, called before the officials and they said, You've got to say Caesar is Lord or be Be executed. And Polycarp knew this was coming, and uh, so he just kind of left the, the city and went out to the countryside, staying in a cabin. Uh, they found him. The uh, military officer and his soldiers knock on the door, and they knew him. And they said, look, Polycarp, you don't have to mean it. Just say the words. We know. But this is what Polycarp said, in essence. He said, for 86 years, I have served Jesus, and he has never betrayed me once, and I'm not going to betray him now. So he was taken. The officer felt he had no choice, but he took, took Polycarp back into the city, tied him to the stake, burned at the stake. Um, all in, no matter what. But again, um, it's easier probably to die the death of a martyr, not to minimize that in any way, but to live the life of a saint. It would probably be easier for us. My experience with Christians in America, North America, I think we've got a higher percentage here by the grace of God. But my experience of Christians in North America is that far less than 50% are all in for Jesus Christ. But if we were transplanted to the Middle East today, I think the percentage would go up drastically because there would be a firm choice. Are you in or out? No more messing around with loving the world, loving money, loving things more than you're loving Jesus Christ. It's all in or not. Friends, we have no excuse. Right here in the middle of affluent North America... We've got the call of God upon our lives to come and die, die to self, and live for Jesus Christ. That's the call of God, and it is our privilege. Friends, the thing about this is this. This is your only shot to do this. You're going to get to heaven one day if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, and there's not going to be any opportunity to sacrifice and surrender your life for Christ because we're all going to be surrendered. It's heaven. This is your only opportunity. Today, this world, this life, is it. If I had a thousand lives, I'd live them for Jesus Christ. This one I've got, you betcha. You betcha. Are you in? One more condition. First, he has a little prequel. It's kind of odd. Doesn't quite fit really with a passage, but sure it does. He says in verse twenty eight, he says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and couldn't finish it. Can you imagine? The Anadarko Tower, the new one looks like it has about thirty stories. Can you imagine they got to fifteen stories and had cranes up there and steel sticking out and and they said, You know, we ran out of money? What would the stock price of Anadarko do? Plummet. You know, that wouldn't be good for their credibility. And he says the same thing with war. You better count the cost and see if you've got the resources to fight this battle. And then Jesus says, sort of oddly, he says, So therefore, okay, in light of what I just said, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So it's a little bit of a twist. Apparently he is saying this. Here's the cost of being a disciple. Renounce all you got. That's the cost. Consider that cost. And if you're in, then come on. Then come on. It will cost you no less than everything. You fully surrender everything. It probably doesn't mean that you're going to literally give it all away. It might. If he made that crystal clear to you. But it does mean you give it to him. It does mean you don't see yourself as the owner of that stuff, but the steward of it. It does mean you don't write across your wallet and across your retirement, across your portfolio and across your house, mine. But you write across it, God's. He's got it all, and you hold it loosely. You hold it loosely. You're not crushed when the stock market comes, when the stock crash comes, because you never based your life upon your stuff you're not willing to renounce all that you have, you cannot be my disciple. Everything you have belongs to God. That includes your kids, by the way. It includes your health. It includes your career. It includes your abilities. It includes your house and things and money and retirement. Everything. Yours, yours, yours. Now, church, those are the three conditions. Jesus didn't shrink back from saying hard things, did he? Who would talk this way? We, 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 we mentioned this last week. Who, who would say these things? Would any philosopher, would Barks, or even any other religious founder, would Confucius or uh, Muhammad, or say, you know, if you don't hate the people around you, you cannot be my disciple. If you don't bear your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. If you don't renounce everything, you cannot be my disciple. But Jesus was different because Jesus is your God, and he made you, and he loves you, and he knows what's best for you. And you don't give up a thing when you become a disciple. You gain everything. Life, peace, joy, meaning, riches. You gain everything. The big sacrifice would be if you chose not to be a disciple, you're going to give up so much life that you could have. And the whole reason, the whole reason we do this is because of a bloodstained cross, because of a Savior who loved us so much. He died for us on the cross. And if you'd been the only one, he'd have still done it. We do it because we love him back. Church, from time to time, the passage calls us strongly into discipleship. And once or twice a year, I give you an opportunity. I give us an opportunity for all of us who are believers, either for the first time or to reaffirm that I'm all in. I'm not perfect. I know I'm not going to be perfect. But Lord, as much as I've got, I'm all in. I'm yours. And I want to give you that opportunity this morning. What we do is we'll stand together in a few moments. I'll put a prayer, a prayer of surrender up there. It's on our website. If you want to put a copy in your Bible, say, maybe mark the date. This is when I did this. But I want to give you an opportunity. I don't want you to feel awkward if you're not ready for that. Uh, Maybe you're not even a Christian. You're here in the room. You're just investigating, checking this out. Well, we're so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here. Am I encouragement to you is to put your trust in a Savior who died for you on a cross. Jesus, please come and save me. Some of you, you're believers, but uh, you and God both know that if you prayed this prayer, you wouldn't mean it. Don't mock God. Don't play games with God. If you're not ready to say this, don't say it. Nobody's going to be looking at you. They're going to be looking at the screen. So you just be praying that God would speak to you and Reveal to you whatever you need to get revealed. But many of us, we don't want to waste our lives. We want to give our lives fully to the gospel. So could we all stand up? We'll put the prayer up now. And uh, if you're not ready to make that uh, affirmation, declaration, then uh, you just pray that God would speak to you and work in your heart, whatever you need to pray. But for many of us, Would you join me with all your heart and declare your loyalty? Lord, because you are my God, because you have made me, because you have saved me by the blood of Jesus, because you have loved me fiercely, forgiven me completely, and accepted me eternally. Let me stop right there. Friends, that is the foundation. Let's go back. Or continue, I gladly surrender my entire life to you. Jesus, I am trusting you as my Savior from sin, and I now bow to you as my King. All that I am and have, I give to you. My dreams, my hopes, my fears, my family, my relationships, my health, my career, my money, my time, my hobbies, my whole life belongs to you. Though I will struggle and at times fail, I choose to rest in your grace, which is greater than all my sin. Father, I receive your love for me. Jesus, I am your fully devoted follower. Spirit, I depend on your power, not mine. I want to live my life as if Jesus died yesterday, rose this morning, and is coming again tomorrow. Have all of me, Lord Jesus. I am yours. Amen. Bless you, church. Lord, thank you for these dear people whom I love so much. Love being able to partner, Lord God, with folks who are all in, passionate followers of Jesus. Lord, I also love the folks that aren't ready for this yet. Lord, show them how much you love them. Show them how much you love them. Draw them to you, I pray. Pour out your love in their hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.